G'day and welcome to Grad Chat, your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ and I'm your host for this week's Grad Chat. Of course, a show like this could not happen without the support of the School of Graduate Studies and a CFRC, so thank you very much to both of them. So today I'd like to introduce you to Sarah Flissakowski, who is doing a Master's in Environmental Studies under the supervision of Dr. Tristan Pierce and Dr. Graham Whitelaw. Welcome to Grad Chat, Sarah. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Now, it's interesting, actually, because I, I wanted Sarah on the show pre-pandemic, actually, as I heard she was doing research on polar bears up north, which got me straight away. The word polar bears, I love them. They're beautiful creatures. And so I thought that is so cool. And at the time, though, Sarah was not lit, not in Kingston, but doing her field work actually up north. Although I thought we could do a Skype interview, which we've done before, you know, the Wi-Fi connection up north is probably not the best. We put it off thinking that we could chat in May. But of course, then COVID-19 struck, which changed a few things for us. So that meant, finally, we get to have Sarah on our show. So it's so good to have you here. And I know it's been a long wait, but actually it's probably good because you've changed your research topic. Absolutely. This is a much better opportunity to share what I'm actually doing. Sarah's research topic now is called Traditional Ecological Knowledge and Polar Bear Co-Management in a Changing Arctic. Can you give us a bit of an overview of what that research now entails? Absolutely. So the reason for the change actually was earlier on in the year, I had proposed research to both researchers at a conference in December. It's an Arctic, it's called Arctic Net. So it's a Canada wide conference that brings together Arctic researchers, students, as well as Inuit, which was a fantastic opportunity. But the research that I proposed actually wasn't received as well as I was expecting. And, you know, to be respectful of Inuit research priorities, I adapted my research so that I was able to respond to Inuit research priorities. My research has always focused on polar bear co-management and in a changing Arctic, so an Arctic that is undergoing climate change. Right. Polar bear are a very sensitive species, a very iconic species, of course, as so many people just love polar bears. They're so beautiful. They're rooted in Canadian heritage, tourism, and identity. But on you know the other side of this face, they are so important to Inuit, both you know, culturally, spiritually, economically, and for subsistence as well. These animals are actually harvested and and consumed. So this is a side of polar bear that a lot of people don't get to see, unfortunately. And so I was very fortunate to learn about this sort of other side of polar bears um, when I was up in the Arctic and as well, even just interacting with Inuit. And as I mentioned, this um, experience that I had at the conference I see that there are there's also a political side to polar bears where mm-hmm. their management is very complex given that these animals range over many countries and so many individuals are stakeholders in their survival right. so making decisions is really not linear or straightforward and people feel very invested and um, can get very defensive in these in these discussions so you know, as a student doing a master's in only two years, I feel like I really only just got a glimpse, sort of the tip of the iceberg um, of this sort of conversation. But yeah, it's 
it's it's a lot more than I expected and it's almost overwhelming. I feel like I was thrown into something that is so much bigger than myself. So it brings a good point actually. You are work, you did work with the Inuit community, but uh, we know in when we're doing research there's a lot of different protocols that you have to go through for any sort of research, but then there's an additional one there because you're working with the Inuit community. Was that all set up for you prior to this or was that part of the process of doing your master's degree? The community that I visited is Ulahakto in the Northern Northwest Territories or it's the Inuit region called the Inuvialuit Settlement Region. So just a little bit of background in Canada. Uh, we have four regions which together form Inuit Nunangat, which is the Inuit homeland. Okay. So we have the Inuvialuit Settlement Region, which is in the Northern Northwest Territories, Nunavut, a place that we're familiar with more so, yes. Nunavik, which is in Northern Quebec, and then Nunatsiavut, which is in Northern Labrador. Right. So polar bears are all over Inuit Nunangat, but I specifically traveled to the Inuvialuit Settlement Region, to Ulahakto, which is on um, Victoria Island. So this community in particular, my uh, one of my co-supervisors, Dr. Tristan Pierce, has um, a very strong relationship with. So he's been working w- with individuals in this community for over 15 years, and right. I think he's formed a very meaningful relationship with this particular community. And so I was so lucky to have that connection because otherwise I don't even think I would feel comfortable traveling to a community just because mm-hmm. such a big part of research with Indigenous peoples is forming those meaningful relationships and conducting research that responds to their research priorities rather than superimposing your own... What we think. Absolutely, that they need. So I was lucky that the community actually, they had invited myself to attend and participate in and also document a cultural learning program that is within the community that my supervisor, Dr. Pierce, had helped create, I guess. Right. So this program has been running for four years now, and it's it's a fantastic opportunity for people in the community to learn traditional knowledge and work with elders and and work on the land as well. So right. the program is called Nunaman Ilahakvia, which in Inuinaktin, uh, the local language, means learning from the land. Right. So this, this program is a partnership between the Ulahakto Community Corporation with Dr. Pierce and currently now the funds are in the community and the project is being completely operated within the community which is incredible for you know that building capacity aspect in northern research so the climate change and health adaptation program which is a program funded by a federal funding agency and this money has allowed this community to put on various cultural activities like drum dancing and sewing and trips on the land for harvesting purposes and it allows youth to be connected with elders and to really learn hands-on skills they wouldn't have an opportunity and to learn, learn that otherwise. traditional knowledge absolutely that is being sort of lost in some cases mm-hmm. or being very affected by climate changes because this knowledge that has been built you know, over millennia and passed down to younger generations is now being challenged by these rapid climate changes that have never been seen before. So it's interesting that you said, first of all, this course, so to speak, if you want to call it that, was created to help the elders pass on knowledge to the younger community members, which is awesome. Was it also through that that helped you change your mind of the nature of your current research like after talking to them that that's helped you change what you wanted to do next 
That's exactly it. So back in December, when I had gotten that feedback as to my original research aims, I realized that I did want to pivot and I did want to change my research so that, you know, I would enjoy it. But more importantly, it would respond to Inuit research priorities. You'll hear that a lot today, but that is really what is guiding what should guide all research, in my opinion, all Arctic research. So my research now reflected the need that the community proposed and I really feel like it was definitely a more interesting aspect of my master's degree was actually, you know, after was after reading, you know, so much about the Arctic and, and trying to learn about polar bears and climate change and experiencing that those challenges with polar bears specifically, it was so refreshing to actually have the opportunity to visit a community, right. speak with people, meet them and, and get to know their, their, their lifestyles without that sort of pressure of polar bears. I could really just learn about subsistence in general and traditional mm -hmm. knowledge in general right. and conversations were so organic and so interesting and meaningful and you know towards the very end I did do some structured interviewing right. and that was only after you know three weeks of, of working with people and visiting and having tea and going to the grocery store every day and <laughs> it wasn't something that I could have done on you know the first day as soon as I got there. Right right because we can learn a lot from those communities of how they've managed to survive all the years Absolutely. and at the same time look after the environment absolutely which is a big big difference so let's let's get on a bit more about your research that you did so why study polar bears and what's what makes them so special other than the fact they're an iconic animal mm -hmm. so climate change is affecting sea ice and polar bears rely on sea ice for survival so projections by climate scientists and polar bear biologists are that you know, sea ice is going to continue to melt and then polar bear populations might struggle in the future or they might decline even because of these climate changes. And polar bears face multiple stressors, not just sea ice change, but, you know, over harvesting in some maybe areas of the world as well as pollutants and shipping traffic and the list goes on. And really, right. I, I, I couldn't speak more to those because it is so uh, dynamic. Right. So this species in particular, because they sit at the top of their food chain, they're an apex predator. And so as an apex predator, they interact with so many other animals in their ecosystem, but also polar bears are an umbrella species. So that term just means that paying attention to polar bears and, and trying to protect polar bears will also sort of indirectly help other Arctic species, which also may be undergoing these population stresses, but just might not have that same attention on the international scale for, for right protection protection yes. yeah i'm glad you're doing this because you see on the television these days all these stories about what's going on up north the fact that the northwest passage is opening up which is going to and for tourists to come and check out the polar bears you talk about the polar bear being the apex so what kind of food do they look for because the other stories you hear is that because their land is getting smaller and smaller they're coming closer to communities and eating first of all, the wrong stuff because they're going to rubbish tips and causing problems within the community, which usually means they're going to get killed, which exactly. is not their fault because we've reduced their land. So polar bears primarily rely on seal for survival because of the fat content. And, you know, they can go mm. very long periods without eating, especially when they're, you know, on the hunt for food. Unfortunately, the Arctic tundra is very bare and there isn't 
a lot to choose from necessarily compared to, you know, down here in Kingston, Ontario. So like you said, they do wander into communities now more so than maybe before. And it's unfortunate because like you said, they're eating the wrong foods or being now harvested sort of because of their threat to the community. And the hide is really valuable as well. And kind of process of harvesting a bear is so ingrained in in tradition there as well it's so meaningful to capture you know your first bear if you're a young hunter and so that's really um, interesting but the you know Inuit communities are seeing more and more bears entering their communities and this has resulted in some communities noting that polar bear populations are growing because these bear populations are now migrating closer and closer to humans Whereas a lot of the scientific reports from the last 10 years have said that populations are either stable or declining. And, you know, these two perspectives are mm-hmm. clashing. And it's so difficult to, to come to a, you know, a, a decision on a particular polar, bo- polar bear population when right. observations differ between scientists and these communities that actually interact with bears every day. So that actually comes to the next question. Great segue. Thank you very much. So what are some differences between Inuit traditional ecological knowledge and scientific knowledge? Really interesting. Yeah, this is something that I've grappled with over these two years, and I'll try my best to to give some of these uh, comparisons. So for the most part, in my opinion, these two knowledge systems are complementary, although they are distinct and, and, you know, the knowledge might be communicated in different ways for the most part knowledge is collected and you know shared in similar ways it's comparable so with scientific knowledge researchers might go out and specifically research one aspect of the environment and they'll probably do it experimentally and you know they'll take their written observations and then they'll go back to their lab or their office and and work through those numbers or um, those observations and come out with reports whereas Inuit knowledge, specifically traditional ecological knowledge, which is just traditional knowledge, so knowledge that's been collected over, you know, millennia, I like to say, so just time immemorial. Yes. This knowledge that is collected is specifically relating to, you know, an aspect of the environment, but the knowledge is situated within a knowledge system that is really holistic and and, and really considers all aspects of the environment and of being, and it's so hard to separate factual knowledge of the environment and of the use of the environment from the you know cultural values placed on the environment and the knowledge system itself and so where scientific knowledge may just look for those facts about the environment traditional knowledge for the most part looks at the whole system together and knowledge you know traditionally in the past has been very much orally transmitted Mm -hmm. um, which is something a bit different from maybe our science that we know today and so Like I mentioned before, the knowledge systems are a bit different, but I really do think that they have, they each have strengths and weaknesses that when put together could really elevate the knowledge that we have of polar bear populations in Canada. I know when you talk to, uh, say, for instance, the Inuit elders, their perception of the land and the, the living animals, either on the land or in the water, their perception is very, very different to ours because there's, as you said, it's a, subs- a subsistence way of living. They harvest only what they need. I can understand, like you said, with that course, how they're trying to teach the younger Inuit about the land and the food sources on it. 
in your discussions with the with the elders, um, and tell me if you didn't have these kind of discussions, what were they saying about the fact that the climate is making huge changes on the environment? How are they how are they looking at that? Is it just a normal cycle for them and they're going, well, things change, so we adapt accordingly? Or are they putting up saying, no, we should try and continue to do this, this and less? I mean, how are they perceiving the changes in, in, and how that affects their normal cultural identity and way of living? That's a fantastic question. So I'll just start at the beginning. Some of the elders that I spoke with were actually born and raised in igloos. So they didn't have a community that they were entering grocery stores and going to sort of sit down schools like we have here so in such a short time in one lifetime there's been such rapid social change Mm -hmm. which compounded with environmental change is is huge it's it's massive these people are so resilient and and have had to learn so much in such a short amount of time and so from my experience uh speaking with elders they did talk about these sort of climate changes where not nothing incredibly specific but Maybe certain animals are being harvested at different times of year, and that's peculiar. Or they've noticed that it's, you know, not as cold as it used to be. Right. So general sort of observations like that that were often shared to me through storytelling were really insightful because, again, um, you can read your scientific reports. I've had, you know, I've read so many papers about climate change and its effect on the Arctic. But, you know, hearing these stories of these observations, those stories are just as valid and valuable and important as these scientific reports. So as I mentioned, these climate changes compounded with social change, like the education system, employment, food sources, technology. So many of these sort of new developments are also commented on. So elders that I spoke with mentioned that there is a loss of traditional knowledge occurring in this community. And the loss of language and the loss of culture are really important to us to be right. able to pass down before some of these elders are old. That's why they're elders. They've had so mm-hmm. much experience in their life to be able to, to share with others and to think that once they you know move on and they're no longer able to, to share that knowledge, it's, it's essentially lost if it's not documented. And especially when you try to take this traditional knowledge and, and use it in a a Western scientific sort of bureaucratic system, Mm -hmm. it does a lot of the times have to be written down to be able to be used in, let's say, co-management or in meetings. And again, that doesn't necessarily, that's writing things down and documentation is now becoming a priority, but it hasn't necessarily been in the past. I mean, even some individuals that I worked with weren't um, so great at reading or writing in English and and you just again that's not really discussed I, I didn't know that when I went there you know people wouldn't be able to um, you know type out emails and things like that it's just right. I was so sort of stuck in my own world here at Queens and I was uh, as you mentioned I was away at the University of Northern British Columbia in the yeah. winter yeah nothing could have prepared me for just that culture shock and I really did feel so safe and and welcomed in this community but my observations were just I, I'm still at a loss for words. I just right. observed so much in those those three weeks, which is really a very short time to be doing Arctic right. research. People go for months and months and, and return, and that's still not enough. Mm-hmm. So I think that, yeah, those, those, those conversations that happen when you are in a place that you're interested in researching are just so much more powerful than anything you could read, um, you know, at your university. I'm going to flip back to your topic, your research topic, you talk about this, apart from the traditional ecological knowledge, the polar bear co-management. 
when you talk about co-management, what are you talking about there? Is it co-management of the Inuit for the elders passing on information to the younger? Or is it co-management between the Inuit and scientists? Is it co-management between the Inuit and the countries that are around the, the various areas? Mm-hmm. What do you mean by co-management? Yeah, thank you for clarifying. So co-management is it's a governance approach and it's defined by the sharing of power and responsibility between resource users. So in this case, maybe it would be Inuit, but also with regional governments and territorial governments and federal governments and governments of other countries. And so, like you said, it's, it's really working on distributing the power so that decisions about polar bear are inclusive of all the different stakeholders. Have you found that? Oh, good question. So <laughs> this is why this is why I changed my research a bit because when I propose that perhaps the co-management system doesn't doesn't meaningfully include traditional knowledge in all aspects of its um, operations, right. that was sort of met with some I don't know what to call what, it negative. Or? Yeah, it was it wasn't well received because hmm. some co-managers, so individuals who worked on co-management boards, Inuit and non-Inuit sort of didn't like that idea that I had suggested based on reviewing the literature as well, that there is tension in at least the co-management system in the Inuvialuit settlement region, which is where I was specifically thinking of focusing. And so that was a big eye-opener for me that Mm -hmm. I personally do see that there is room for improvement in the co-management system, but some people are satisfied with the way that it's working, which is, again, a challenge. And, you know, as a master's student, I did have to pick my battles and, again, conduct research that was approved by regional boards, which is ultimately uh, where the the power lies in conducting Arctic research. I mean, obviously, it's great if you have a partnership with the community, but even if they would like the research, you do have a bit of almost gatekeeping at the regional or territorial level where you do have to propose your research and get that license before you're able to travel and and spend time in communities. One of the things I would find difficult in co-management is that the community is always going, well, is still there, but whoever's in the, like the government side could change. And so you might have someone one year or five years which is totally on board, totally understands it, realizes the importance. But if that person changes, does all the policy change with that, with that person? You hit the nail right on the head. So that is a big problem that I personally haven't experienced myself, but that I've heard a lot about is that there's such a high turnover on these co-management boards and you know, right. terms or positions maybe maybe only a year or two years. And so let's say I propose a project now and it's well received, as you mentioned, in a year or two when I might go about actually entering a community, it might no longer be a research priority or it might no longer be up to the standards set by, let's say, a co-management board or a regional government. So it is really challenging from what I've heard, specifically in relation to polar bear co-management. So again, I I can't relate my experiences to other species or other communities. I'm really just speaking on what I've observed, but the, there is a challenge in proposing research and having it approved when there is such a high turnover in these, in these Mm -hmm. um, institutions. So what other challenges are there with the traditional ecological knowledge generation and also the transmission facing um, you know, contemporary Inuit communities. Mm-hmm. So um, just flipping to my fieldwork experience, 
a lot of youth are, you know, into their phones and into their technology as our youth here, as I am, right? Mm-hmm. But that is sort of new. So a lot of uh, older residents of the community may just be on Facebook or they might have a computer or, you know, an iPod. But it's it's a bit of a disconnect where individuals who are younger are spending time in their schools and spending time at work or on their phones, but less so, you know, going out on two-week hunting trips with their families. And there's also less of a push because maybe 50 years ago, prior to this, to these rapid changes, individuals would have to go out Mm. of their community and harvest food because there wasn't a grocery store to, to choose from. Right. And I mean, what's available in a grocery store is, from my experience again, very expensive. Mm-hmm. Some of the quality, the quality of some of the items is very low. So I think maybe, again, from what I've learned through these conversations that I had was there is now this reliance on store-bought food. There's right. less of a need or even an interest to be going out the land or the ice for, for mm-hmm. food, essentially. And I think youth might be seeking those opportunities to learn in some cases but there might just there just may not be an opportunity for them to do so so in the community that that i visited this nuneman ilahakfia program is very well attended in relation to language learning there's a radio show that happens once a week that's funded by the the climate change and health adaptation funding where they will teach Inuinuktun words and Excellent. callers can, you know, call in and participate in a raffle and just just little things like that that are so kind of a part of everyday life in the community right. that it's it's easy for people to seek out those opportunities if they'd like. So um, another example that I um, participated in was sewing. So twice a week they have these sewing sessions where, you know, elders come and they bring their sewing bags with the projects that they've been working on. Right. And the actual supplies are included for if, um, you know, someone wanted to walk in and like myself, I actually learned how to sew while I was there. So I made a <laughs> pair of seal skin gloves. If wow. you can imagine, I have never sewn in my life, but I attended that uh, those sessions for the three weeks that I was there. And by the end of it, I had these amazing gloves that probably I, the warmest you've ever had absolutely oh yeah what i brought up was definitely not warm enough for the arctic but you know <laughs> we learn you live and you learn um but something like that i can just see the value of uh people being able to have these opportunities these outlets where they're able to attend events or participate in activities that they may otherwise not be able to do so so do you think then with the work that you've done and and like you said it you've done your two-year masters so I'm sure there's lots more things you wanted to go and 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 research do you think so though that what you have learned in that short time we can be hopeful that polar bears are going to continue we can be hopeful that the traditional knowledges of how to support the, the, the polar bear up north are going to succeed I would say yes. I think, you know, there's there's always hope. And with climate change in general, it can be such a discouraging concept to think mm-hmm. that so many aspects of the world are changing so quickly and maybe it's out of our control. But no, I mean, we really do need to stay grounded and think about how our everyday actions can contribute to sort of bigger changes on even the international scale. Uh, a challenge with polar bears is because they are of such interest to the world. Yeah. Decisions are made on the international scale that sometimes have detrimental impacts for individual communities. So an example right. of this is the US banning the import of polar bear products. So a big part of the northern economy is sport hunting where individuals from Europe or really? North America, 
Absolutely. Yeah. Not so much now because of this ban on imports and um, similar uh, Inuit communities have had similar changes with seals as well, where individuals from the South, so North America or from Europe, um, are coming less often because they're not able to transport those products back with them. But with this harvesting, this sport hunting that happens, I guess I I didn't really discuss the, the system of tags with communities. So communities are allotted tags to be able to harvest polar bears so there is a cap on how many can be harvested in a certain amount of time right so when sport hunting happens tags are taken out of this total so it's not you know in addition to what is already being allotted Um, so it should be sustainable exactly and you know these numbers changed year they change year to year based on observations and scientific studies and things like that so um, I think I don't know if I've used this word yet but co-management and management of polar bears specifically tries to be as adaptive as possible so you know because polar bears move between countries between Mm -hmm. regions even these polar bear subpopulations that exist so there are 19 subpopulations in the world and 13 are entirely or partially in Canada so these populations sorry subpopulations are studied and you know analyzed sometimes individually but we all know that animals are they're, they're wild, they're living, they, they move. So yeah. that's something to keep in mind when assessing these subpopulations. Is that they all work together. Well, you certainly done a lot <laughs> in your short time up there. Is this something you want to continue with? Oh, that's a great question. I think I would like a bit of a break from the polar bear world. As I mentioned, it was sort of a lot to take in and and I appreciated that the problems that exist are so much Mm -hmm. bigger than something that I'm able to uh, change. But I'm just so thankful that I sort of stumbled upon this research opportunity because originally I did my undergrad here at Queen's in life sciences and I thought that I wanted to work in healthcare and a couple of years down the road, I look back and I don't know how I ever could have uh, done anything differently than right. than where I am now. But mm-hmm. I'm just so lucky to have been provided with that opportunity through Queens here and my supervisor here, uh, Dr. Graham Whitelaw. And then Dr. Whitelaw connected me with Dr. Pierce, who then had these community connections. So Brilliant. together, it just really, really worked out for me. I'm just so thankful. Well, I am glad we, we still got you into the studio <laughs> because, like I said, as soon as I heard the word polar bear, I am in. I want to interview that girl. (laughs) And it sounds like you've done some amazing work and uh, both for the community, but also for yourself, I think. I mean, it's it's all part of growing, isn't it, of Mm -hmm. learning these new things. So so well done on that. And I understand you're actually going to be defending very, very shortly. Hopefully early October. So, yeah, I'm really looking forward to wrapping it up and then proceeding with other deliverables and potentially publishing a paper and writing a book chapter. And so definitely keeping busy. Excellent. Well, well done. And thank you so much for coming into the studio to do this interview and to help us understand some of the things that are going up there, going on up up north with our polar bear population and also our Inuit communities. So thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. That was wonderful. Excellent. So that's it, everyone. Another week of Grad Chat sadly comes to an end. Don't forget you can download download the show tomorrow from either iTunes, Google Podcast or Stitcher. Just type in a grad chat. Until next week, this is CJ the DJ signing off with a big hooray. This 
This podcast is produced in collaboration with CFRC.ca in Kingston, Ontario. CFRC is located on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Infrastructure support for the CFRC podcast project is provided by Queen's University's Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences. For more information or to get involved in podcasting, visit podcasts.cfrc.ca.